Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and this hour, Ace Collins is going to join me. And this has gotten to be quite a lovely tradition this time of year. Ace comes on twice now, and I'm so excited to have him back. And I hope this tradition continues for as long as I do radio, that he will come on and talk about Christmas. He's written seven books on Christmas. And today we're going to talk about some stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. Ace, welcome back. It is a joy to be with y'all, and I understand y'all have some really cold weather. Oh, it's it's cold and, and snowy and slippery and everything, but it's uh, it's Minnesota. Yeah, it's Minnesota, and you'll get a white Christmas this year. Oh, no, we, we already have one. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going anywhere, yeah. Yeah, a lot has to happen between now and uh, Saturday for us not to have one. So anyway. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's going to happen, in truth. I've been looking at your forecast. You know, we're supposed to get down to five here and in Arkansas, where I live, and that's that's pretty remarkable for this time of year here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Ace, I was just on your website, and it looks like you've redone it a little bit. I had a... One of my son's friends kind of updated the website, okay. gave it a different look. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. You can go to acecollins.com to check it out. He's written over 100 books. Now, my previous guest, Ace, we were talking about the the, the uh, tradition of Christmas trees. And I do think, I remember you telling me once, when people started having Christmas trees in their homes, they hung them from the ceiling. Is that right? Or did I not yeah, remember that Lat- correctly? No, the Latvians did that. Yes. They hung them upside down from their ceiling. So the trunk went against the ceiling, and then the top of the tree hung down toward the floor. And, uh, I, you know, I get asked all the time, why did they do that? And I, I don't know. In truth, my guess, you know, history doesn't record why they did it. My guess is simply because homes weren't real big back then, and so they were giving themselves more room to walk around the tree mm-hmm. uh, and admire the tree. But I've always had this visual concept, and it goes back to watching television shows growing up and things like that, or that centered on Christmas, and the husband always underneath the, tr- the live tree, and the wife telling him, "No, it's still not straight. No, it's, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm imagining, I'm imagining that five, six hundred years ago with a Latvian husband up on top of a ladder, mind you, trying to get everything set from the ceiling." And having the wife go, no, no, you need to go over another four inches. I I have a feeling this was also the beginning of some of the Christmas, shall we say, misunderstandings between husband and wife as well. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, about 50 years after the Latvians hung it upside down, the French and others turned it, well, turned it to its normal position. And, and that became kind of a symbol of Christmas. Long before it was a symbol of Christmas, it was brought inside churches as a creation tree. And it was a tree that was used in the wintertime when there was not a lot going on in rural communities and churches had more uh, activities uh, a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago during that time than we do now. And they would have all kinds of pageants. And one of the pageants was to tell the creation story with children. And they would bring a, an evergreen in because it was still very much alive and tie fruit onto it. And and uh, one of the children would pick the fruit and give it, give it to another 
uh, child, and that was a creation tree, and it, and it evolved from there. Um, it was used by missionaries, uh, Bartholomew and others, um, in in uh, Europe during that time as a way of explaining the Trinity. Uh, the triangular sh- shape of the tree represented the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Uh, so it was kind of a living track. The fact that the the tree didn't die in the midst of winter represented everlasting life. Um, it was used a lot of different ways to explain the explain the gospel to people who didn't read. Mm-hmm. And, and so nowadays we hand out these little tracts a lot of times that have four spiritual laws and other things on them. And and you know here's the here's your pathway to salvation. Well, back then. They used both the evergreen tree and the reef, and especially mistletoe in Northern Europe to explain explain the gospel and what Christ, life, death, and resurrection could mean to these people. Ace Collins is my guest, and we're chatting about one of his many Christmas books. This one is called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. Ace, would you tell my listeners about the colors of Christmas? Yeah, it's interesting. We look at all these colorful lights now, and if you go back a thousand years when they didn't have lights, but they had colors of decorations on tree uh, on their in the churches and various things. Uh, purple represented royalty. It still does to this day. We don't think about it much in the in the nation we live in, but purple represented royalty, and of course. You know, Jesus was the King of Kings. Uh, so purple at Christmas t- time was representing who Jesus was in that respect. Red represented action, but it also represented the action of Christ setting, um, Christ being crucified, his blood, uh, opening the door for us to have eternal life. Uh, Yellow represented the light that came into the world when Christ was born, the light that is still can come into our lives to this day if we choose to allow it. White, that was purity, and Christ was the only one who lived without sin. Um, Green represented, we mentioned it earlier with the trees, everlasting life, a life that would not end. Why green? Because that green color always growing represented to farmers and people in rural areas everlasting life, but particularly evergreen trees who, who didn't lose their leaves in the, in the wintertime. And blue represented love. It was the color of love. Mm. And so if you look at lights on Christmas tree and you start thinking of the specific meanings that those would evoke to someone who walked in and saw ribbons and other things or candles of that color and other things in churches a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago, you could understand that each one of these candles was important during the Advent season as well as important when they lit them on December 25th. Mm. Ace Collins is my guest and go to acecollins.com chatting about great traditions of Christmas. So, Ace, if I get a Christmas card and it's signed Merry Xmas, should I be offended? No, not really. I mean, you know, if if Timothy or Paul got that card, they they wouldn't necessarily be uh, celebrating Christmas because Christmas really wasn't celebrated for the first 330 years of the the New Testament, I mean, of, of our life here. But they would look at Xmas as... Mass meaning worship, and they would recognize the X stood for Christ. And for about a thousand years, the church normally wrote Christmas with an X and a must because, once again, we mentioned it earlier, people couldn't read, they couldn't write. But when they were asked what faith they were, they could draw an X, and everyone 
understood that was the first letter of Christ's name in the Greek alphabet, you know, the Chi. And when you put those two together, it had worship Christ. So everybody a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago, even two or three years after Christ's death would be looking at that and saying, ah, worship Christ. You know, there are stories of X's being written uh, in the dirt underneath where a Christian uh, was persecuted and lost his life, his or her life for their faith. And, and there's some speculation that the long before pirates were using it, the X might have, the X marks the spot might have actually been marks the spot where someone died for their faith. Um, so rather, you know, for most people from old days, rather than taking Christ out of Christmas, it was actually recognized as meaning Christmas, you know, Christ worship Christ. Mm -hmm. And so if you know that, just like if you know the, the, the real meaning of mistletoe and others, you can use that to your advantage during this time to actually explain what X must together means, worship Christ. Mm -hmm. I love that. When you talk about knowing what things mean, it does better equip you when you have conversations. And the nice thing about Christmas is that people will sometimes criticize the length of the season because it starts, you know, practically before Thanksgiving. But what a great opportunity we have to have multiple conversations about our Savior and the birth of Jesus. I, I listen to a lot of classic radio from the 1930s and 40s, and you watch the transformation of Christmas on those radio broadcasts, those Christmas broadcasts. And, you know, and I, I listen to them, ironically enough, to kind of get a perspective when I'm writing from that era what the language was like and other things, because I do a lot of novels set in that time. But what you notice is before World War II, the Christmas season lasted about a week before Christmas. And that's when shopping started. They didn't even put the Christmas tree up until Christmas Eve on most occasions. Um, Christmas was a very short season. And, and in that respect, what changed it, what changed it was World War II. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt and others asked stores to decorate early to have gifts stocked early so that people could buy gifts to send overseas and make sure they got there so that the men and women who were serving the military would be able to have Christmas on mm. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And after World War II, it didn't end. We continued to have that enlarged season of Christmas. I look upon that, and, and people say, well, it's because of commercialization. Yeah, but look at all the major religious holidays of all the faiths across the, across the globe be it Passover or Ramadan or even Easter for Christians, they don't have this enlarged worship period. It's, it's basically the day it happens, you know, sometimes two or three days. And that does not give us at Easter much of an opportunity to share our faith or talk about our faith or emphasize what, Christian, uh, what Christ's birth, life, death meant. At Christmas, when you have five, six, seven weeks, the door is opened many, many times. And people who are grumbling because, well, we're having Christmas too long. It's been commercialized. Excuse me. This gives us an opportunity that we don't get at Easter and other times. And so this is a gift. And I, I kind of look at it myself as a God-given gift uh, that allows us to because of the commercialization, to also make it a much more meaningful religious experience. I, I was autographing the book we're talking about today one time in Indianapolis. This has been about 10 years ago. And I had a lady buy 23 books. 
And I, I looked at her and I, I said, when I was signing him and said, who am I giving these books to? She said, everyone in my family, we need to know the stories behind the traditions of Christmas because we have Christmas every year and we don't know much about it. And she explained to me that she was not a Christian. None of her family were, but they <laughs> celebrated Christmas. And by, by, because they did, they wanted to know where the tree came from. They wanted to know what mistletoe stood for. They wanted to know the colors of Christmas. They wanted to know more about Advent. That, even though these people weren't Christian, proves that you have an opportunity because of the commercialization to actually explain faith for an extended period of time on this holiday that we don't like get like any other time of the year. Yeah, we should all be this intellectually curious as this woman buying 23 copies of your book. Ace Collins is my guest. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back. I'm going to find out all about mistletoe when we return. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. If you just joined me, welcome. We're talking to Ace Collins. He's written seven books on Christmas, as far as I can count. The one we're chatting about today is called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. And if you are curious about that, this is the perfect book to have on your coffee table around Christmas because people will pick it up and they'll they'll see uh, the chapter on, for example, mistletoe. And you wonder, what is the tradition, what is the story behind this tradition of mistletoe, Ace Collins? Well, it's interesting because it was early missionaries who went to northern Europe who discovered that the mistletoe plant growing out of trees in the wintertime where people could really see it uh, was something that was both frightening and uh, powerful to these individuals. Uh, The mistletoe plant Uh, had such great meaning to the Vikings and Celts that if warring tribes met in a forest and looked up and saw mistletoe, they had to find a way to seek peace. Um, Early missionaries looked upon this plant that stood for peace and obviously connected it with the prince of peace. And Jesus, and they used the plant in a very unique way. They would, they would break one off and take it off of a tree and point out that this tree grew out of a seemingly, I mean, this plant grew out of a seemingly dead tree because people back then believed that trees died in the wintertime and then mysteriously came back to life in the spring. When you lost all your foliage, the tree looked dead to them. And so people would listen to this and they said, as they as they explained this little bit about the mistletoe, and they said, these this greenery continues to live, and that is like Christ, who was nailed onto a tree, but did not die and rose and lives to this day. Even the darkest, bleakest days of winter could not kill him, and if you believe in him, it also can't knock you for a loop 
your faith continues, you can survive even the toughest times. So the growing out of dead wood represented Christ. The green represented eternal life. Much of the mistletoe in that section of the world had both red and white berries. And the red berries represented the blood of Christ. The white berries represented the purity. When these people converted to Christianity, they took the mistletoe plant with them. And it became a track, if you will, to explain to others about their faith. If they were a Christian, they would often nail mistletoe over their doors. If they had a new child, they would thank God by putting mistletoe over the child's crib as a symbol of their faith and how they would pass that faith or. Uh, down to that child. And when people fell in love and got married, it was a tradition to get married somewhere inside or outside with a mistletoe plant hanging over the altar. And at the end of a wedding ceremony, what do people do? They kiss. All these years later, the only element of mistletoe that must, most of us mm-hmm. know anything about is it's a kissing plant. Mm-hmm. But in truth, it was put over the bride and groom to remind them if they lived in faith, that they walked in faith, that they could survive even the toughest, bleakest days, just like the mistletoe plant did. Ah, Ace, that is such a great story. And you're right. We only remember the kissing part. But if you you can actually know it now. You can actually use it uh, much the way you would hand a track out to someone to explain, okay, this is where this came from. This is the faith. I got asked an interesting question the other day on the air by uh, someone who said, you know, all almost all these Christmas traditions, you know, came from pagan roots, and they did. Um, and and they said, should we be accepting them because they came from pagan roots? And, and my answer back was, when did you become a Christian? And he said, when I was in college, and I was 19 years old. And I said, so you had 18 years of living without Christ? And he said, yes. And I said, so you were a pagan for 18 years. Should we accept you into the faith? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, I, my life was transformed. And I said, the meaning of these plants was transformed by the missionaries and the early believers from what they originally stood for to something that was important to them and their faith. Transformation, therefore, takes place not just with human beings, but with the things that they cherish around them uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Ace, I don't know what angels have on their to-do list every day, but it certainly seems like around Christmas time. They were all very busy. Well, if you look at it, what's the oldest tradition? What would you think the oldest tradition is? I ask this question all the time, and I actually give credit for two different answers. One of them is giving, gifts. Mm-hmm. The wise men brought gifts. Okay. And, and so, but, but even before the wise men brought gifts, angels were, angels were singing. Yeah, that'd be my guess. So, so caroling, obviously, is the oldest tradition we have. You know, it may have not evoked into a... To a a thing that swept our nation until the 1880s, but caroling was a part of that very first Christmas, caroling to the shepherds, if you will. You know, now, you know, if you get into technicalities, what the original translation of the Bible said is, you know, wasn't, you know, hark the herald angels sing, that was hark the velkin ring, but ringing and singing, that's close together. And Velkin being heavenly boost and angels very close together. Okay, so you, you got you got a pause hit there. What did you say, Velkin? Velkin. Yeah, right, that was explain you know, that. the original transla- translations have Velkin. What does Velkin mean? Heavenly heavenly host. Okay. Heavenly heavenly host and ringing, angels and singing. As a matter of fact, if you go back and look at the original lyrics to uh, the uh, Charles Wesley 
to a song, uh, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He, he actually, the original lyrics were, Hark the Heavenly Velkin Ring. Hmm. And he was kind of upset when they published it with other lyrics. Uh, he, he wanted it to be biblically forward. But angels singing, angels ringing, uh, who, who's to debate the joyful noise that it was? Yeah. And, and so angels are everywhere. And, and they're, they're important, you know, um, to us, not just from a, a standpoint of believers. They're important through all of, of heaven. Most people's, I, I would say most people's favorite Christmas movie is the 1946 movie that Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed were in. Uh, you know, when you look at a, It's a Wonderful Life, what is the key moment is when the angel gets his wing and you hear, you know, you hear the bell ringing. Um, and, and ironically enough, I, the funniest, I, funniest comic I have seen this year was um, was a, a uh, somebody had drawn a drawing of angels. Every time an angel, uh, every time the bell rings, an angel gets its wings, and it was an angel waiting for his wings at a wing stop. But um, <laughs> you know, it ranked right up there with last year's about. Uh, an old one I saw last year about there was a fourth wife, wise man. He brought fruitcake. <laughs> uh, we don't talk about him, yeah. you know. So, um, but you you look at angels and they're everywhere. They're in, and I think they've been preserved to such a degree because we put them in Advent wreaths. We we like you know I, I said this in the book. It, angels comfort us to think that there are actually heavenly beings that watch out for us, that are there for us, that we can depend on makes life a lot less lonely and gives us an opportunity to step out on faith with a bit more confidence. And so uh, I think we've extended this heavenly host um, from that moment to our moments in life now where we believe in those guardian angels that, that uh, reach out to us. And therefore the angel on the tree, the angel in your yard, um, that's symbolic of, once again, I think you can go back to Advent, that's symbolic of the coming of the Christ. And, and therefore, um, it is probably, in many ways, the most spiritual of all the symbols we have. Mm-hmm. And Ace, a lot of the illustrations we see of angels look kind of uh, baby-esque versus the ones that would scare people. Yeah, and I wonder. I wonder too if that's not because of the, the birth of Christ and and the connection of sure. of a baby in the manger to that, um, and you know they don't really tell us what angels look like other than a lot of shimmering and, and shining going on here, and and obviously there were otherworldly when people saw them. Mm-hmm. Ace Collins is my guest. You can learn more about him at acecollins.com. and we are uh, chatting about one of his seven. Christmas books, the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. When we come back, I want to ask him about Christmas cards. They have quite a history. I think you're going to be amazed. And Ace also has a pretty spectacular habit every year when it comes to Christmas cards. You'll learn about that when we come back. If you uh, have not heard, we're trying to give hope to someone at Christmas time. And if you want to uh, submit somebody who might need some extra help at Christmas, go to myfaithradio.com. And you can learn more about Give Hope for Christmas. We'll take a short break and be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. I'm not sure if you noticed or not, but Christmas is this week. Um, And for those of you who might be curious about some of the great traditions of Christmas, my guest Ace Collins has written a book about it. It's called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. And one of the great traditions of Christmas is card writing. Where did that get started, Ace? started in Victorian England not long after Christmas became a uh, holiday the English actually recognized and, and became a holiday that was meant for children and families rather than the holiday that was kind of Mardi Gras on steroids that happened before 1840 uh, for you know best part of 1500 years. And, and when you look at that early Christmases, you had people who were always busy. They were as busy as we are today. And and the way they communicated was the mail. And Sir Henry Cole, who was one of the most important people in England, got a lot of mail. And it was impolite in the, that time not to respond to mail. And he didn't have time to respond over a thousand pieces of mail. And mm-hmm. what he did was he found a piece of art, got permission to use it, that was a, a scene of a family gathering around a Christmas table. And he had that printed on the cardstock, and he had a verse written on the inside. And he sent that out to the thousand or more people that he owed a letter to and didn't have time to write. And ultimately, they were so impressed that they went to the same printer next year and got their own cards with that same uh, picture and that same verse. And from there, publishers figured out that there was a uh, something to be done with Christmas cards. And with the advent, they were for the wealthy initially because it was so expensive to buy them. Mm -hmm. But with the advent of of economical printing after the Civil War here in the United States, you could actually buy Christmas cards and mail them very cheaply. A penny was all the card cost to mail and send them to friends. And writing letters was very important in that time so if you had an opportunity to get a Christmas greeting card, you know, that became a very important thing in your household. And by 1900s, literally hundreds of millions of them were being sent across the United States. I'm very fortunate. As a matter of fact, I actually looked through them the other day and put them on my face, some of them on my Facebook page. I have my grandmother Collins's Christmas cards going back to the 1930s. And so I have 20 or more than 20 years of her Christmas cards that she kept. Wow. From all of her friends. And it's really interesting to go back and look at those cards. Um, there's a good mix of religious cards and and secular cards, yet everybody who would have sent her a card would have been a Christian because that was, you know, in your rural America, her friends and family were all Christians. And yet there's very little Merry Christmas written on those cards. Mainly what is written are Happy Holidays or season gre- Seasons Greetings. And, and people might wonder why that was done that way. It it was done that way because this was a card for the entire holiday season, Uh, not just Christmas, but New Year's. They They were sending you a card hoping that you were well, hoping that you were happy. They would write on that card to remind people that you loved, they loved you, and hopefully you loved them. And they were wishing you uh, blessings not just for the holiday season on December 24th and 5th, but also for New Year's Eve and New Year's and the and the 
new year and what would be what would come in it. And, and so it's also interesting if you go back and I've got over to my right, I've got some cards from World War II hanging on my tree here in my office, which is actually decorated like a World War II tree uh, with the tinsel, the candy canes, the the old fashioned light bulbs and and balls that were made before 1945. And some of my cards hanging in the tree are interesting because they have stars on them. And if you had one, you could go out and buy stars to send overseas to your um, to your person who was serving in the military or send them to your friends. And if you had one person in the military, you got one star. I've got a card over here that has five stars on it and in the printing. And that meant that you had five different people from your family serving in the military during World War II. Mm. And so it was a way of also telling others that your your people were sacrificing for the cause in World War II. So card history is fascinating as well. You mentioned that I use them a little differently probably than other people do. If you're receiving a card from me, you're important in my life. And so I will sit down and write three or four or five sentences on that card about how you've impacted my life and how much you have meant to me and the reasons why. And therefore, it becomes not just a Christmas greeting card, but also a thank you card for those people impacting my life. And so my Christmas cards are thank you cards as well as Christmas cards. That's beautiful. Ace Collins is my guest. Ace, I suppose the season's greetings message was really uh, an economics one as well. You can maybe afford to send the one card and mm-hmm. you're trying to cover a lot of ground. You're just happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I hope you're well. Yeah, and and people usually wrote, if they were good friends with people back then, you would write a letter a month to mm-hmm. catch them up on what, what was going on in your life. And this served as that letter for the month of December. Uh, and, and, you know, people sometimes overreact when they get a card that seems secular, things like that. It's the sentiment. If you if people care enough to mail you a card, you know, you've made an impact on their life in some way. And, and so, therefore, um, embrace that if you get the will. By the way, in America, it's really funny because uh, when I was talking to uh, Geneva, uh, um, a newspaper in Geneva, Switzerland, the other day, I was talking about, y'all have the Christmas that all of us want. You know, the mountains, the snow, the, the evergreen trees growing everywhere. I said, this is an ideal American Christmas, whereas this this year it's going to be a little different because we're going to have a lot more of the country covered in snow than we normally do. Normally only 10% of Americans get to see a white Christmas. So yeah. why does an American Christmas on Hallmark and all the other places where they do movies in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s, 50s when they did movies, why do they look the way they look when most of America doesn't have a Christmas like that? And the reason is Jingle Bells. Because that song written for a choir at Thanksgiving about boys trying to impress girls by drag racing one-horse sleighs, um, if you will, an 1840 Beach Boys song, uh, (laughs) was the song that when it became so popular, uh, everybody sang it at Christmas rather than Thanksgiving, which, which was what it was written for. And it swept the nation when we started to really adopt Christmas traditions. And and it inspired Courier and Ives and all these people to, to have horses and sleighs and bells and all of these other things that were in the song on the cards. And so when you get a Christmas card this year, remember that it, it might well have been in the imagery on it might well have been inspired by, quote, the world's most famous Thanksgiving song, Jingle Bells. So Jingle Bells started off as a song at Thanksgiving with young men trying to meet girls. 
Yeah, trying to impress teenage boys, trying to impress girls. Okay. Yeah, that was what it was. And, and so, and if you think about it and you listen to the lyrics, it's actually a drag racing song, uh, you know, just without a lot of horsepower, just one horsepower <laughs> on each horse. And the other thing that's kind of funny about that, if you think about it, I talked to the songwriters who did, um, when I did the book on the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas, which we already talked about, I talked to them about Jingle Bell Rock, you know, because, man, greatest, you know, dance rock and roll song of all time? No. They didn't write a dance song. Listen to the lyrics. And they, they, they were somewhat upset when it came out and people thought it was a dance song. It's about riding in a one-horse sleigh. And so if you listen to it, the lyrics are about what it feels like to ride in a sleigh in the wintertime. Mm. And once again, it's kind of hit and impacted, taken a little differently into the way we view Christmas. And that's kind of interesting as well. The American Christmas that is all over the world. I mean, the Australians in the middle of summer celebrate by singing White Christmas and Jingle Bells and all these other things that, you know, they won't experience until July, if they experience them at all. It all goes back to a Thanksgiving song. And uh, that's kind of an interesting theory. Now, for the Europeans, they had they had snow all along, so we they didn't have to... Um, do that, but we we kind of invented American and Christmas with uh, and and the traditions that go with it. Even though most of the country doesn't get that snow all the time. Mm-hmm. Ace Collins is my guest now. Ace, I've I've read your book, so I can't fool you with your own material. But here's a hint, and you take it from here. How about the shepherd's staffs, the little sweet ones? Ah, uh, yes, um, candy canes. Yes, exactly. Uh, where did they come from? Uh, go back about 500 years, and a, and a choir master in Cologne, Germany, had a problem. Uh, the way the Christmas services were drawn up, his children's choir had to perform first in this two-hour ser- service. And he knew what was going to happen. As soon as that song was over, those kids were going to be sitting in, in that section of the church where they were, and they were going to be passing notes. They were going to be talking to each other. They were probably going to be hitting each other from time <laughs> to time. You know, they were going to act just like kids act today right. in children's right. when they're sitting out there. So what he did was he came up with a, a thought. If I give them some hard candy, candy that's meant to last a long time, candy that's so hard you can't chew it, you have to suck it, it'll keep them quiet. But he also knew that if he did that, everybody in church would be mad at him for essentially bribing children. <laughs> and so what he did, we went to a candy maker, found some white, hard candy um, uh, sticks, if you will, and said, can you make those in a hook shape? And the guy said, sure, we can make them that way. So he took those white hard candy sticks, remade into a hook, and he gave one to each one of the children and explained that the stick stood for the good shepherd. And the church people couldn't get mad at him if he was using using the candy for a purpose of teaching them a Bible lesson. <laughs> and by the way, it worked. It kept the kids quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so over the course of time in the United States, that, that tradition was still there with the white candy canes. Um, but there was a man in Indiana and then another man in Alabama that figured out how to put stripes with a machine onto that candy cane. The man in Indiana put three stripes on it because his, his uh, brother was a priest and he put the three stripes on to represent the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, the Trinity. Uh, He said the white represented the purity of Christ, and he tied the little meaning of the candy cane onto every candy cane he made. 
the red represented the blood of Christ. And so it became a symbol for those who received it of Jesus. And by the way, it was no longer a shepherd's staff. The crooked piece of candy was now a J. And so you still see opportunities to buy candy canes to this day with that little message that that was, that was written almost 200 years ago on that candy cane, uh, maybe maybe more like 150 years ago. Uh, the candy canes were hung on trees for years. Um, something else that was hung on trees that people may not realize in many homes across the United States were little boxes of animal crackers. And the string on the animal crackers was not so you'd carry the animal crackers. It was to put over the tree and children had to look at that those cookies hanging on that tree for a week or two or three. Then on Christmas morning, as they opened their presents, they got to take the, the animal crackers off of the tree and eat them as they, as they opened and played with their presents. You know, Asa, I always wondered why the little string on the box, you just explained well, now you know. <laughs> now I know. Yeah. That is a, a great story. Ace Collins is my guest. You can learn more about Ace at acecollins.com. And, it's always uh, fun to talk to Ace, especially this time of year. He's written seven books on Christmas. This one is Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. And if this is a kind of book you have on your coffee table, a lot of people will say, well, what is that? And you can probably open it and and read a couple of the pages and give them some real stories behind these great traditions and amaze your friends. So we'll take a break. We'll be right back with Ace Collins in just a minute. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back. Ace Collins is my guest, and you can learn more about Ace at acecollins.com. His book is Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. So, Ace, would you talk about Handel's Messiah? Handel's Messiah is interesting in the fact that it's a piece of music that was written by a man who was once as famous in his world as, say, Elvis Presley was at the peak of his career in ours. Um, He was wined and dined by the royalty throughout Europe. He lived, actually born in Germany, but lived as a successful man in in England. And he wrote a music style called oratorios. And when they faded out of popularity, he was overextended. He couldn't pay all of his bills. He eventually lost his home. Um, Most of his friends moved to the wrong side of the tracks, the slum area, if you will. and would not answer his door because he was afraid that it was debt collectors and Hmm. he couldn't pay them. And so he was scared he was going to end up in a debtor's prison. By this time, he was almost blind. He had had an unsuccessful cataract surgery. He also had gout and other diseases. He was not an old man. He was middle-aged, but he was not the picture of health. One day, he got a letter from an eccentric man named Jennings, And this man was somebody that most people looked at and thought, boy, he's a wacky one. You know, he's, he has ideas just 
that are really weird. And the ideas Jennings had for his friend Handel was, hey, why don't you write an oratorio about the birth of Jesus as pictured in the Old Testament? You know, so through through prophecy, if you will. And Handel thought about it for a while and thought it was a good idea, had nothing else to do. And he wrote it over about a 16-day period, that oratorio. Yet he had no place to perform it because nobody was interested in him. So it should have been a work that just kind of went away. Um, but someone who, in a different country, Ireland, uh, needed to raise money for a charity hospital. And they needed somebody who had a name but would work cheap. And so they called Handel, who was more than happy to escape the debt collectors and go to a different country. And he brought his new music with him and in front of a very small crowds with a, a just kind of a little choral group and not much in the way of instru, inter, instrumentation, they performed for several weeks this oratorio. Um, word got back to Great Britain that Handel had ma- found magic again, and he had no long, no more than embarked at Great Britain and people were saying, hey, you've got to perform this in London. And he did. And the third night he performed at King James was there, and James looked at this music and was so overcome when he got to the Messiah part that he stood up, and people have been standing ever since. Um, Handel was one of the least of these when he wrote the song, and it resurrected his career, and he died financially healthy. Mm, Good. Uh, Over the course of the next 20 years, it was performed a great deal. Then oratorios went out of style, and, you know— couple of generations later, people started performing them at music festivals. And Handel's Messiah was one of those that was formed, performed. Um, it later was moved into churches, and they would use it at Easter time as one of their ways to celebrate Christ's life. Well, some people who were pretty intelligent thought, man, folks would pay money to go see this. Let's move it to Christmas. And they did, and for the last 150 years or so, Handel's Messiah has been used by choirs and nonprofit groups to raise money for charities. Mm. And more money has been raised for charities by this piece of music than any other song in history. I, I find the irony that a man who really was one of the least of these, a man who had nothing when he wrote the song, has therefore, through his creation and music and inspiration, touched more of the least of these, thanks to the gifts that were brought in through this music, than possibly any other man that's been born in the last four or five hundred years. That is such an interesting story, Ace. It's an interesting Christmas tradition, it if really you think is. about it. And yeah. we can't imagine the holidays without Handel's Messiah being performed, maybe on PBS, maybe... Um, in your local church and various mm-hmm. places. It's it's an important part of the holiday. Yeah. Ace Collins is my guest. Ace, uh, what is the tradition behind the Yule Log? The Yule Log, well, that was back in the day, by the way, when the Church of England did not really celebrate Christmas. Protestant churches didn't back then. The Lutheran Church did, and, and then so did the Catholic Church. But most Protestant churches kind of ignored it. It, it. A little bit of tidbit, up until in the 1840s, Congress met on Christmas Day unless... Uh, the government worked on Christmas Day unless it fell on Sunday. Uh, it was Christmas was kind of ignored. And the Yule log, though, was, was the way the peasants loved it. They would go out and cut a tree and they would spice it up and they would actually 
light that tree on fire and they would burn that tree over a 12 day period representing the 12 days of Christmas, which meant back then that the 12 days of Christmas started on Christmas day and went through January 6th. And they would light that log, the sweet, the sweetness of the spicing represented the, the sweetness of a Christian life and faith and hope. The fire represented the fire that should burn in our souls because of Jesus coming to this earth. The flame represented, if you will, the light that came into the earth with Christ. One of the most interesting elements of it is that a piece of that wood would be saved so that next year they would light the next Yule log with the piece that had been saved. Mm. And so it was a tradition that went on for hundreds of years, particularly in old England, um, before the church actually adapted and adopted Christ- Christian services on Christmas Day and, and Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. So, Ace, if I'm a, a major American ballet company, I'm guessing 40% of my annual ticket revenue is going to come from performances of the Nutcracker. I would guess. You know, people who have never seen a ballet in their life treasure the Nutcracker. <laughs> every every child who ever wanted to dance in, in a group, every little girl wanted to dance in the Nutcracker. Um, it, it's amazing how few people actually realize it's ballet. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is associated, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you will. It came from, obviously, Eastern Europe, where ballet was very strong. And, and, and it does represent uh, the holidays in a very unique way. That's where we get the imagery of the toy soldiers and and... and you know, the dancing girls and other things that we wouldn't have without that particular, um, without that particular piece of music. It's kind of like Carol of the Bells gave us suddenly, there have to be bells everywhere at Christmas, you know, even creating a legend that all the bells on earth rang when Christ, the moment Christ was born. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how many bells there really were on earth back then because bells didn't become an important part of of worship or anything else until a thousand years later when we had church bells. So, you know, we recreate legends. The, the greatest legend I think that's recreated is, is Luther's cradle hymn, which is uh, way in the manger, which there, there are pageants that celebrate Luther, Martin Luther writing this for his children when it was actually written in America 300 years after Luther died. But the first published version of it called it Luther's Cradle Hymn, so everybody mistakenly thought that Martin Luther had written it. Mm-hmm. Ace, we just have a couple of minutes left. Would you talk about the traditions behind stockings? Stockings go back, gosh, 1,700 years. Um, uh, if you go back to about in 300 AD, there, was, there were stockings being hung by fires every night by poor people, uh, because they would wash them and hang them by the fire to dry. It was the only p- pair of stockings they probably owned, maybe at most two. And so they had to keep them clean. And there was a man named Nicholas, uh, Nicholas of Baria, uh, who had once been very wealthy and still had his wealth when he became a bishop in the church. Yet he, his goal was to give that wealth away. And and women could not get married with a dowry. And the poor people's women, therefore, had no dowry. And so he would go by at night, locks, there were no locks on doors, and leave money for a dowry in stockings. Well, Nicholas, because he dressed in in red robes and other things, eventually became a saint, Saint Nicholas, and inspired Santa Claus. He and a a Latvian duke named, that we now know today as King Wenceslas, that's the DNA of Santa Claus. And, And so those two Christian men who went out on Christmas Eve, 
giving out gifts to the poorest of the poor, began the legend of the, in England, Father Christmas, and here Santa Claus, you know, Kris Kringle and other country, countries. But you can trace that back to a man attempting to give away his wealth to poor families, not just to help with their basic needs, but to make sure their daughters got married. Mm-hmm. And that's why they hung their stockings by the fire. Ace, we have just a minute left. What is your personal favorite tradition, one you're most looking forward to this week? I, You know, for me, they're all important. I, I think giving gifts, which is the oldest tradition, if we, if we will, the wise men brought gifts. And if we would all use the wisdom that they had in, in, in purchasing our gifts for others, that the gifts would last a lifetime, you know, not just momentarily purchasing something, oh, that'll do, but thinking about the individual that you're purchasing a gift for and, and doing that, because the wise men did, you know, the frankincense and myrrh, funeral spices, spices for worship services, the, the gold needed by someone who was going to actually um, have a ministry, and the gold also was only given to a king, and, and these wise men had been given insight into the fact that this was the king of kings, the son of God, and a man who would be the most important religious leader on the planet with the gifts that they gave him, and a man who would eventually give up his life and hence need the spices for a funeral, frankincense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we need to have that kind of thought that goes into the gifts we give others. Mm-hmm. Ace, thank you so much for taking time. I just love having you on. Have a Merry it Christmas. It is a joy to be with you all and a mighty Christmas to you Thank y'all. you so much. Ace Collins has been my guest. The book is called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. AceCollins.com. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you have a wonderful evening. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.